So first this evening, I'd like to just talk a little bit about listening to Dharma talks. (laughs) You know. Um, There's a way that uh, there really, uh, there's some piece about information somewhat, but it's really uh, more about uh, this kind of intuitive connection that has to happen. And it takes, uh, uh, really, uh, this is not a time where I I kind of was looking around, everybody kind of getting into their uh, total relaxed situation, you know. So you let someone else's mind speak for you. And um, just a suggestion here, that uh, really, uh, if it could be helpful to put 80% of your attention in your body, so you're actually, there's that part that's uh, listening, and that part of the body is also, the, of course, the sound on the ears. But uh, it's this capacity to um, use this as a practice time. So it's not particularly uh, something that's uh, to, to stir or create more, but actually in some ways just to, um, in the sense, create a receptivity that um, sometimes words can help us get under the words. So, I will start here with, I was thinking earlier when I was going to read this, I thought, oh, this must have happened to me in the womb. But anyway, well, it's called the first senior moment. (laughs) And um, so, uh, there are these Uh, two dinosaurs and they're kind of sitting on this little island and there's a palm tree and just the top of the palm tree is there and and there's water everywhere. And there's uh, the ark with all these kind of creatures on it. And um, one of the dinosaurs turns to the other and says, oh shit, was that today? And that's what happened to the dinosaurs. <laughs> so we need a little humor, you know, in this, uh, all this uh, serious work here. You know, so uh, in the kind of tradition here, uh, I like to, I kind of sit in my room and, and um, I'm really dyslexic, so I can't really type, so I have to... Uh, use my computer as a a kind of voice-activated writer, and it's always, sometimes it writes its own thing, you know? (laughs) It's quite amazing. It used to be, now it's a lot more exact these days, but it used to go off and run off and say things I I couldn't imagine, you know? (laughs) And some of them are fascinating, you know? (laughs) But anyway, so I wrote you a poem tonight, and and a little bit here just before I read it, because it's uh, it's an interesting evening. You know, uh, I remember back in the, I was thinking back, ooh, 46, 47 years ago. That gives me something about senior moments. Anyway, the, um, I remember studying, and one of it was when I first was trying to figure out what, in the, in the 60s, in the kind of middle 60s, uh, looking for the Dharma, you know. And one of the pieces there was looking at the configurations and, in a sense, the kind of the occult, because it was something that had been through the Kabbalah and, and uh, through a lot of the world had been passed down uh, as information that uh, was, uh, you know, had some mystery to it. And it's, okay, oh, there's got to be mystery here. And one of the pieces that uh, fascinated me that also was one of the incentives about going to India in the 60s was that there was uh, a temple that uh, was called the Sun Temple that was, uh, uh, that the Mayans had built, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, and that on the same latitude all the way across in India, uh, on the east coast of India, was another temple identical to it uh, that was uh, called Kanarak, you know? And so it just sort of, like, I've recognized, oh, there's things going on here that I have no idea about. And there was this great mystery that was... uh, uh, available and tonight is part of uh, a great mystery of some what um, uh, 
a calendar that's uh, restarting itself after five, the long calendar of the Mayans is 5,125 years, and it's restarting itself. So that's pretty cool, you know? Uh, We sit on kind of a threshold here of uh, a couple strange, to me, uh, uh, strange cultures, you know, between the apocalyptic and the, um, you know, the, the, I know in Cancun right now there's these, uh, you know, uh, parties going on. You know, go down and, you know, I, I, you know, party till the end of the world or something. You know, <laughs> but you know, in the Mayan tradition, uh, it, it is really uh, it's about cycles, and so this is just the beginning of another cycle. So, solstice. A bodhisattva renewal. When will we ever wake up? Destined to sit in our own darkness, clamoring for our own redemption. Such an apocalyptic culture, caught in the vortex of absolute endings. Innocence gifted back to us when we are given ourselves over to the fears and anxieties. Clouds down around our ankles, damp and gray wrapped in our own bodies and rain gear. The long calendar of the Mayans destined to start another solar cycle. Hooray! Another chance. Sitting still, somehow trusting the current, open to an unmoored boat floating downstream. Sitting still, somehow trusting the current, open to an unmoored boat floating downstream. Deadlines, schedules, appointments, a world with constant demand breaks my heart over and over. The faces of small children lost to a future, seeing the open innocence of my three grandchildren, wondering what pain these Connecticut families feel. The sitting here heroically loving the small voice underneath. This sitting here heroically, loving the small voice underneath, deep below the obvious, some sanity recognized, wisdom found. Dissecting the personal over and over to nausea, Slowly stepping back, separating content from the vast space. Relaxing in some small space, the sky has no limit. Somehow knowing the heart understands. All separateness was untrue. Welcoming us to a new paradigm. Wisdom with compassion flying off into the future. This joy can be catching. Blessings. So, that's my offer. I say I can end now, but uh, I'll, I'll piddle with it, you know. It's always a constant... Uh, exploration here of uh, what is it Um, the piece around getting underneath the obvious Uh, and all of this is really based on our ability first in the stillness uh, obviously the obvious is uh, kind of the personal and all the stories that go with us you know but it's not the purpose here you know and yes there is some untangling there and we use the words purification But ultimately, there's something bigger and deeper going on here.
And uh, that's really what I want to explore with you this evening. But I have to go through that, what, that sweet darkness uh, that holds us this time of year. And, um, you know, that uh, piece around those four um, means that Donald talked about, in the sense I was thinking of the fertility of the darkness. So I'd like to read, this is uh, from one of my favorite poets, David White. It's called Sweet Darkness. When your eyes are tired, and the world is tired also, when your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark, where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you're not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. So there's really these two aspects that um, I see in this process of uh, kind of untangling our tangles and that this sitting still and uh, in the sense there's so much about this practice is just simply sitting and waiting. You know, we get lost, we get found, we get lost, we get found. But in that there is this subtle untangling uh, that's going on, you know. So I'll tell a story here. There was once this man named David, and David um, decided to uh, study the secrets And so he went to Sedona, you know, he had to go to Sedona. And uh, he went and, you know, did drum workshops and, and, uh, you know, studied at the Institute of Shamanistic Studies in San Francisco and uh, went and, you know, and and went into the desert in Arizona. And and he said, I want to find the greatest magic, you know. And his seeking of that, the greatest magic, as he was traveling uh, through Arizona, he heard about a woman, a woman who lived down in the desert of California. And uh, so he gets in his car and uh, he drives uh, out into the desert, way out in the desert, and uh, to this old funky trailer out there, a little fence around it. And... uh, he goes and knocks on the trailer door, and this uh, old woman comes to the door and says, oh, I've been waiting for you. And at that point, he sort of steps back a little, and then uh, she says, well, come in. Uh, and uh, what are you looking for? And he says, well, I'm looking for the greatest magic. He said, she said, okay, well, come in and have a cup of tea with me. So uh, he goes in, and, and he sits down, and uh, she goes and, and uh, heats up some tea and then brings it back and, and uh, begins to pour it into his cup. And as she's pouring it into his cup, suddenly there's, it's California. There is this great earthquake that happens. And fear strikes him deeply and he gets up and he runs out of the trailer and gets in his car and starts driving into the desert. Miles and miles and miles. No, he has no idea. He's just, at this point, you know, he has that uh, obsessive fear that has caught him. 
uh, in his uh, his search. And he goes and goes and goes and, uh, you know, uh, suddenly he realizes, uh, he looks down, his gas tank is, uh, uh, is, is on empty, you know. And uh, he sees a little gas station out in the middle of the desert and he drives up to it and, you know, he comes up to it and this uh, Indian fellow comes out and, and uh, says, uh, we've been waiting for you. And uh, he kind of, kind of, jumps back and says, "No, I just want some gas. That's all. I just, I just want some gasoline. That's it. You know, just give me a little gasoline, and I'll be happy. I'll go on my way." And at that point, you know, he says, "Oh, we have this prediction." And then his wife comes out, and they said, "Oh, you're to marry our daughter." You know, and at this, he he sort of rattles and, and goes, "No, I have to. I just give me some gas. I want to get out of here. This is, you know, this is way over the top." You know, and um, and his story goes. You know, he he realizes he can't go anywhere unless you know. And she's this beautiful uh, young Indian, and he says, "Well, you know, what could be worse?" You know, so uh, he decides, and they have this, you know. Uh, marriage that afternoon, and you know they sort of have their evening, and and in the night, the parents die. You know, and as the parents, when they die, the daughter comes and says, predicts this, "Oh, uh, you're to stay here, and uh, by staying here, um, that is the prediction." So he stays. You know, and, uh, you know, years go by and he's the happiest he's ever been in his life, you know. And he has a kid and then another kid. And one day, uh, a truck comes with uh, this movie gear from L.A., you know. (laughs) And they show up uh, at the gas station. And uh, suddenly, in that moment, he's back with his cup of tea, sitting with the old woman. And she says, this is the greatest magic. You know. And I tell this story because it's really about, uh, I think you know this story. Uh, you've been telling stories forever, you know. And um, in the tradition, you know, we get lost in these stories. And last night, you know, Heather talked about all these, you know, the the complexity of how we hold ourselves and how the self kind of perpetuates itself. This is a a wonderful poem from, uh, it's actually from The New Yorker. Great stuff. The word I. Harder to breathe near the summit. The harder to remember where you came from. Why you came. Winter's hard. And harder to say the word, quote, I. With a straight face and sleep. Who can sleep? Who has time to prepare for the big day? when he will be required to say goodbye to everyone, including the aforementioned pronoun. Relinquish all earthly attachments completely and witness the end of the world. Harder, in other words, not to love it. Not to love it so much. You know. So, uh, the story where uh, creatures who um, we get lost in our stories and our thoughts. And uh, really uh, what I'd like to just go through here is there's four simple functions of these stories. They're pretty simple, you know? First of all, and we have to begin to see that there is always this kind of uh, leaning towards and that out of that leaning towards, you know, uh, a thought goes through our mind, and what happens? 
we grasp it and then uh, we take and embellish it and then we create this, uh, you know, there's a word that Heather talked about, the five aggregates last night. And the fourth one is mental proliferation. You know, it's, it's the mental formations that, that out of a simple thing, uh, we create these worlds, you know? And the thing is to begin to understand them and see how they hold us in captivity for periods of time. And this one, I think, you know, in a sense, desire or wanting uh, is very tricky. First of all, it's not about the pleasantness. The pleasantness uh, is something due to causes and conditions arises for a little bit of time. Okay? Pretty simple, you know? But we know it's also impermanent. It's not something that uh, is going to... Maybe it's there for 10 moments and then something else arises, you know? And uh, the subtlety here that we're working with is really the difference between the pleasantness and the wanting. And getting to know the difference... You know, because the pleasantness is just, in essence, just pleasantness. And it's great. We should all have lots of it. It's cool. Right? But in it, uh, we have to distinguish the difference between desire and pleasantness. Or the wanting and pleasantness. And what does it feel like? What does the wanting feel like? You know? And it's so interesting that, you know, I use the example of like, oh, you got ten moments of pleasantness. That's really great. You know? How lucky you are. And suddenly, you know, three, three moments into the pleasantness, uh, you start strategizing. There's a mental formation that says, I like this, I'm going to capture it, I'm going to, you know, reproduce it, I'm going to somehow, uh, you know, imprison it or make it mine somehow, you know? And the thing is that we don't, it's so subtle, sometimes we don't know the difference between the pleasantness and the wanting. And one of our practices here is to learn the subtlety of that difference. You know, oh, I can see, I'm kind of leaning out. I'm no longer, when I'm here, I'm just in the moment. And that arises, that's what's happening, you know. But there's this other state, and it really creates that mental proliferation and suffering. You know, So it's a subtlety, but we have to learn it. In the same way, unpleasantness comes up. And unpleasantness, you know, unfortunately, uh, it sort of went with the territory of the first arrow of having a body and being caught in, quote, time, you know, and that uh, where are you in your kind of timeline? You know, I always think, you know, sequoia tree lives 5,000 years, you know. We're like two little rings, on a sequoia tree. You know, that's the max our life is. You know? And so there is some uh, understanding there that, okay, there is the unpleasantness that arises uh, due to time and uh, genetics and, and, and uh, conditions and, and situations. And in some ways we have uh, not so much power over that. But we also... Uh, can take and embellish and create incredible amounts of uh, aversive uh, mental proliferation, uh, mental formations uh, around it. You know. And again, it's something to, okay, you know, we sit here and, and there is this uh, discomfort in our body. You know, and I sit up here and I, I'm comfortable these days, but I've been sitting like this for 45 years, and believe me, I have suffered, you know? I have suffered sitting like this. So I do understand, you know, when um, I just remember times in Burma where I was put with a lot of Burmese, you know, and they just seem to have, their hips are kind of out and their knees are just like, you know, uh, I don't know, jelly or something, you know? And after about an hour and a half, you know, and I'd be sitting up front, I would like go into abject pain, you know. And but then I felt that, you know, the what was I forgotten? Heather was talking about queen. the queen, yeah. So I've become the queen, you know. And so there I was, you know, uh, just you know, completely, uh, you know, uh, trying to, 
you know, somehow uh, inhabit some belief system I had about who I was supposed to be, you know? And it wasn't really authentic, you know? So I had to suffer for that, you know, greatly, you know? Uh, The third of these I I was going to talk about this evening is... um, so we have, you know, the consequences of pleasantness and then desire and wanting and studying that. And then there's the aversive and, and how we see that, you know, unpleasantness, uh, when, um, you know, it, it, in so many ways, and I know this is a difficult one because the body, I've been through a lot of pain in my life. I was thinking, oh, I've been through typhoid and, you know, dengue fever and, years of dysentery and hepatitis, all the stuff that happens after, you know, 10 years of Asia before they had certain, uh, you know, shots. And You know, when I was first there, I used to drink the water on the trains. I can't believe it, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, probably, you know, I, you know, that was the thing. I went there and I went native right away thinking that was the, that was the right way, you know. And uh, the consequences were, you know, uh, somewhat disastrous over the years. <laughs> Good teachers, but disastrous anyway. You know, so we also come to the fact that okay, here we have this whole other place, and, and this place is that, you know, we have liking and disliking. Then we have uh, our opinions and views, and what we make up about things, and even. You know, in a sense, our our social um, conditioning, you know, that comes from our schools and our parents and our kids. And uh, we use all that in some way to project on the world the kind of good and the bad, you know. And the Buddha was was, uh, remarkably clear uh, about the consequences of, um, you know, of... uh, views and opinions about things, you know? And one of the things is we have to see the consequences and then see if we can't learn how to thin them out so we're not imprinting them on the world in some way. This is from the Sutta Nipata. Uh, Seeing misery in views and opinions without adapting any, I found inner peace and freedom. One who is free does not hold to views or dispute opinions. For a sage, there is no higher, lower, nor equal. No places in which the mind can stick. But those who grasp after views and opinion only wonder about the world. And that's a liberal translation. Annoying people, you know. And uh, it is a, a big deal, you know, that we start to see how our conditioning, and how we imprint uh, from uh, these uh, beliefs and views. You know, and it's one of the trickiest things to me that uh, has caught me uh, has been insight, you know. Uh, Because insight, a lot of times, out of insight, then we create, oh, wow, I had this really great insight. And out of that, then I concretize it and kind of freeze it in time and think that somehow that's the way it is. And from these practices, it's actually we have to, you know, I used to joke and say, you know, there was Ghostbusters and there's, a, there's kind of Viewbusters, you know, and that this practice is about, we have these insights and, and don't hold them too tightly, you know. They were true in that moment. And they gave us some picture into, or some experience into how things are. But it's only a piece of a huge, huge uh, puzzle here. You know, our world is based on this thing of the visible. And uh, the practice itself is our capacity to, to allow the invisible uh, to be known to us in some way. You know, beyond the, the kind of confines of our senses and our thoughts, that there is this phenomenal world that's self-organizing and, and, and you know, just studying anything in science, creatures or fish or anything or the stars, you know, uh, gives us some kind of view into uh, the 
uh, you know, a world, in a sense, could be without limit, you know. And that we are self-limiting, you know. So our practice here is to sort of thin out, and I can only use the language of thin out, kind of our uh, ways that we, it's wonderful to have insights, you know. And uh, yes, we can't sort of live without, you know, a relative self, uh, but the Buddha was not so interested in the relative self. That was not his interest. His interest was to get below, as far down as you can get, where that sense of separateness uh, is thinned out uh, to such a point that uh, one begins to recognize uh, the uh, unconditioned, the uh, uh, universal. Uh, all that is um, not in the constructs of our mind, you know. You know, I I was, uh, I go back to the whole Mayan thing here, you know, when I was uh, two months old, um, I had a, a, from the Mayan, from the highlands in El Salvador, uh, uh, I always called the the Nepali name Aya's sister, a sister who took care of me till I was four and a half. And um, it's a very beautiful, uh, their language is very sing-song. So it was easy, and I'm somewhat dyslexic and probably every other learning disability uh, that's out there. you know. And so the sing-song language was something I could learn, and it was easier for me. So that's what I learned to speak, you know. And um, it was, and, you know, my mother, I mean, she was very much, uh, uh, what, uh, she was way back there and she was very much intellectual and, and had gone, she had worked with the Penitente Indians first in New Mexico and then had gone down to work in the Mayan highlands with the Indians down there and uh, kind of met my father and that kind of stuff. You know that stuff, you know. You know, what is it, uh, uh, I uh, see. Um, uh, my father went to the picnic, and I came back with my mother. I, I don't know if that's the right language. <laughs> uh, that was really bad. Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> and so a fourth of these kind of mental proliferations, these mental constructions that we do, uh, has to do with the self. You know. And again, uh, as I say, the relative self, and Heather did such a beautiful job of of kind of breaking them up, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But you know that this whole process, first of all, is we have the relative self. And, um, you know, for me, I went to India very young, and and, uh, I screwed up big time always. Uh, You know, I'm very good at that. And so, you know, what is it, school of hard knocks? You know, and so uh, one of the pieces, though, is that, um, uh, that spiritual bypass, uh, was uh, a wonderful imperative for me, but it's really doing it in reverse. You know, you should actually have a pretty good sense of yourself. You know, when I came back to the States, man, I lived in a teepee for two years. I was a wreck. You know, it was like I couldn't put this world together with that world. And it was really painful, you know. And uh, I had no, really, some of my social uh, skills and, and uh, you know, getting a job and all that stuff, you know, was uh, pretty minimal. And, um, and so my advice always is, oh, no, let's kind of build a sense of self and who you are. And then you can come here and then we can break it down. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, but we don't use big sticks or anything like that, you know. We lull you. We love you <laughs> into thinning out a sense of self, you know? And a little different than the, you know, some of the, you know, Rinzai Zen tradition. Uh, but here, we try to give you an explanation, and then, uh, in a way, it's, it's like, I think sometimes this, this room is like a polstice, 
and it pulls the the um, you know the anxiety and the fear, and of course we have to kind of go through it that dark part of ourselves, but it begins to pull it out, and out of that there is this sense of oh something is more going on here, you know. So. These are the four I just wanted to talk about, but I want to move now into another aspect of this. And that aspect has to do with, uh, there's a a wonderful, if I can find it, which is, um, I don't find it immediately. But it has to do with the musk deer. And the musk deer uh, is uh, out looking for its scent that it itself produces. Okay? The musk deer is out looking for the scent itself produces. And the same way in this practice, that somehow, you know, we have the kind of the carrot uh, in front of the horse kind of thing or and that somehow there's enlightenment and, and there's, we, we're going to somehow, you know, get there. And uh, from a, a different perspective here, uh, the idea is that you are the mustier. You have what is look, being looked for. And there is a part of how we hold that. That means that you somehow you're going to have to, uh, first you kind of chase after your stories. And then you have to understand how your stories work and how you've created kind of through the desire and your, uh, your kind of uh, aversion and, and your kind of all your cultural conditioning and, and views and opinions about everything. And uh, this, uh, you know, uh, creation of uh, this dualistic world of self and other, you know, that we work so hard to create that, you know. But ultimately, uh, there is something that is uh, alive and has been alive all the time. And it is actually something, some, I like the language sometimes of, and this is incorrect, so much of what I'm going to say is incorrect because it can't be really said in words, you know, is that there's something behind your eyes, the knowing itself. And that knowing uh, is, it can be caught in the dualism and it also can let go of the dualism. You know? And if it lets go, it, there is a natural, they use words like radiance and luminosity and, and that there is a, 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 a truth in uh, that, um, in you. Uh, that uh, you can begin to recognize that when uh, the static and, and the kind of confusion and the uh, desire and the pushing away of things, when suddenly we're just sitting in the center of things, you know, and uh, there isn't uh, a wanting for or against what's happening, that there is this uh, recognition, and that recognition uh, is your birthright, you know, it is something that's all, you, you've never been away from it. That's what's so cool, you know. But the practice here, it, they say it has to be, in a sense, kind of passed on or, um, you know, pointed to or recognized on some level that uh, you are walking in that, you know. And that is not something confined. Uh, it is something that, uh, like this, you know, what was it in my poem, that kind of the, uh, uh, the sky has no limits, you know, just as that radiant mind that uh, uh, has no limit, you know, uh, and that we have to learn somehow in each of our ways that, uh, there will be moments where there is just, uh, we're sitting in the center, you know. And what's so difficult here that completely uh, kind of catches us is this is our habituation. Our habituation is that we all want to be happy. It's pretty simple, right? This is all, all human beings, they want to be happy. And some of it's quite confused, but it, it wants to be happy. 
The thing is that in its instinctual nature, it believes that pleasant sensation will bring happiness and then unpleasantness will bring unhappiness. And what we're doing here is actually, we're kind of teasing this out on some level so that we begin to understand that it's not about that. You know, that there is, uh, you could call it the zero point. You know, and that zero point, uh, it, we're passing by it all the time, but there's a problem here. Is we, in our, so it's, it's a counterintuitive would be the right language. We somehow believe that you know, um, that if we get, you know, a powerful enough experience of pleasantness, then we'll be happy and we can keep it continuous, you know. And then we get incredibly controlling and powerful to sort of move away from discomfort. And we're swinging all the time over a center point. And the center point is not obvious because both of those have charges on them. You know, both the pleasant and the unpleasant have charges. And what we're, the Buddha was pointing at was a place without a charge. And he simply used the word peace. You know, that peace was available. And that that peace was not dependent on the charge for or against things, you know. And so as we sit here, then as we begin to understand kind of our psyche and how the mind works and how our emotions kind of, you know, uh, in their tainted and stained states uh, keep us caught. You know, as we begin to understand that and kind of go through that, then we begin to start seeing, oh, there are points all the time that we're passing over this zero point. And that we begin to say, oh, wait, oh, what's going on here? No, I don't need to move at all towards or away from anything. I can simply sit in the center of this and begin to see that, oh, this is, uh, you know, luminous and it's mysterious. It, uh, it is not in any way contained or has boundary, uh, but uh, is uh, free, you know, uh, free, completely free. You know, as we start working with that, in some sense, and start seeing that that freedom exists. Uh, and uh, in a sense, we start taking the charge uh, off of the obvious, you know, of the pleasant, the unpleasant. And as we begin to do that, then the fear and the anxiety, uh, uh, because we can't hold on to the uh, pleasantness and we can't keep away the unpleasantness. You know, they are due to causes and conditions. And, and we don't, we have some power over them, but not so much, you know. And so at that point, there is this uh, marriage between uh, 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 freedom uh, and a mind that uh, sees itself for what it is, uh, that it also is fearless, you know. And when it's fearless, then it also gets that, oh, this is, this ultimately, then when I'm not afraid, and I'm actually just hanging in that zero point, then there's no separation here. There's no difference in the um, conditioned world, you know. And at that point you go, oh, you know, I am so moved uh, by the conditioned world, you know. And actually your heart is, uh, you know, we can say open. It's not lost in it and it's not uh, rejecting it. It's simply open to it. You know, why? Because ultimately if there is non-separateness, you know, and it was really what the Buddha was talking about, this kind of universal, is that you are me and I am you. And that ultimately, you know, when we start with the metta practice, we say, oh, we're kind of doing it for uh, ourselves. Who, who, who is yourself? Are you relative self? Are you ultimate self? And if you are ultimate self, then to do it for yourself is actually uh, doing it for all, for all beings. Their non-separateness uh, is uh, that that you are. 
uh, when you get out of your own way. You know? And certainly this is a training. I'm not saying that this is, but you have to, I, you have to know this. You know? And that you have um, the capacity and the capability you know, uh, as mixed up. And, you know, it's like these history. I have, oh, I have incredibly complicated history. You know, when I came to America, and when I was four and a half, uh, leaving my aya, my sister, um, I uh, stopped speaking. And uh, when I stopped speaking, they put me into uh, at University of Kentucky, a <laughs> uh, school for autistic children, you know, for autism, you know. And sometimes I'm not so sure, you know, but, <laughs> you know, it, the, the, the thing was that uh, because I stopped speaking, I didn't speak for a year, you know. And I'm sure it was just, you know, the pain of uh, separation, of, um, you know. But out of that, you know, uh, kind of um, complexity, you know, and then, oh, and then at six, I was sent to boarding school in Switzerland. Yeah. So, you know how that goes. You, know. <laughs> you don't, I, at my kids, I said I would never do anything like that to them, you know. And uh, they turned out okay. <laughs> I did too, I think. <laughs> but, um, you know, and you all have stories. I'm not saying that, you know. But you're more than your stories. You know, I guess that's really what I'm trying to say. So I think that's probably, uh, that's good for tonight. And we have a little more later tonight, but right now, I'll just read my poem again to kind of uh, complete this. Solstice. A bodhisattva renewal. When will we ever wake up? destined to sit in our own darkness, clamoring for our own redemption. Such an apocalyptic culture, caught in the vortex of absolute endings. Innocence gifted back to us only when we have given ourselves over to our fears and anxiety. Clouds, down around our ankles, damp and gray, wrapped in our bodies and rain gear, this long calendar of the Mayans, destined to start another solar cycle. Hooray! Another chance. Sitting still, somehow trusting the current, open to an unmoored boat floating downstream sitting still, somehow trusting the current, open to an unmoored boat floating downstream. Deadlines, schedules, appointments, a world with constant demand. Breaks my heart over and over, the faces of small children lost to a future, seeing the open innocent, of my three grandchildren, wondering what pain those Connecticut families must feel. This sitting here, heroically loving the small voice underneath. This sitting here, heroically loving the small voice underneath, deep below the obvious, some sanity reconnected, wisdom found. Dissecting the personal over and over again to nausea, slowly stepping back, separating content from the vast space, relaxing in those small spaces, the sky has no limit. Somehow knowing the heart understands. All separateness was untrue. 
welcoming us to the new paradigm. Wisdom with compassion flying off into the future. The joy can be catching. Blessings. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.